So they were going to originally launch in the beginning of January of 2009. And then a few days before, they said, uh, you know, something's complicated. We can't launch it. It'll be the following week. And then that happened two or three times. I said, uh, Lydia, is this really going to happen? And she said, Bob, we have more people trying to put Ken Ken in the New York Times than we have covering the war in Afghanistan. Welcome to the Hey Good Game podcast, where we chat with the creators of your favorite games that you secretly play in the cracks of your day. Well, today we are meeting with uh, Robert Fuhrer of Ken Ken Puzzle fame. He's got such a rich background in the toy and game industry. It was such a joy for the three of us to chat with him today and, and just kind of hear from his years of experience in the industry, traveling to Japan, and uh, learning more from all of those experiences. Nate and Joseph, what were some of your takeaways? Well, for me, I thought kind of going into this, I knew that he wasn't a developer himself, but being able to sort of spot opportunities and put himself in a position to collaborate, find the right people to work with, and find the right ideas. He just had a knack for kind of picking that out of, of the thousands of opportunities that he had in front of him. So I just I really had a ton of respect for Robert's curative uh, abilities. Yeah, he has lots of stories that he shared and some philosophies along the way. He talked about freedom being currency, which came early in the conversation. I was like, ooh, it's not just games here. And then at the end, he had one where he goes, I'm glad I didn't know you couldn't do it. And I think that cap over the top of most of the stories as you're listening uh, helps you get a sense of how he went about the opportunities that were in front of him. So really enjoyed our conversation. And now to the chat with Robert. Thanks for being here, Robert. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you guys. Good to meet you too. You know, Robert, you've won numerous awards in the toy and game industry, and you've had the opportunity to work on some some really big board games and in a past life. I'm wondering, you know, what got you interested in the industry in the first place? So when I was a kid, my my dad was a salesman for Matchbox Cars. That's That was his first job in the toy business. He came from uh, book publishing, actually. So when I was, I, I don't know, I guess 10, 12 years old, he was already, you know, with Matchbox. It was owned by a British company. Later on, he went on to work at Estes Rockets, which you may know, and a, and a few companies that no longer exist, uh, a kite company, handicraft company, and, and so on. So so I got, uh, I guess, introduced to the toy industry, you know, from, from that time on. And uh, my my first job coming out of school was, was, you know, right for a, like an agent, a toy agent. In fact, the, the first toy idea that I I ever had was accidental was when he was at Estes Rockets. I think you guys know Estes Rockets, right? The model rocketry, it's like a hobby. Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't much into them personally, but he was there. And he came home one day. I was about 15 years old, I guess, 16. And he said, we're trying to appeal to younger children. So we're coming up with this line of products so if you can think of anything 
you know, for a younger person. And then I, I have kind of a corny sense of humor. And I said, oh, you know, why don't you uh, design a rocket like a foot and call it the mistletoe? And and wouldn't you know it, they did. <laughs> so 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 they, they came out with this uh, product that I think it sold about seven pieces. You know, it was, it was not there, but that was the first idea that uh, I guess I ever had that made it to a market, even though I didn't do much on it. That's awesome to get that kind of an experience at a young age. You know, I think one of the things that we keep seeing is such an opportunity for kids to get involved in creating games and learning about entrepreneurship from an early age. Were there other experiences that just working with your dad in, in that capacity that kind of set, set you on this path? Well, I didn't, I didn't really work with him. He, he was in the industry, so... Uh, we got, you know, the trade magazines were coming to the house and, you know, you get familiar with things. And then my first job out of school was, uh, so he knew, he knew, uh, the agent for the game Othello and I was hired as the product manager for the, for the person, for the small company that, that were the, at the time were the agents for the game Othello. So I was, um, made the project manager for that. I worked that for about four years and and that was probably the most uh important time because a fellow came from japan originally and part of my job was being assigned to work directly with the japanese and they they sent somebody to the u.s they kind of learned the u.s market and, and my job was to be his friend so so uh i i did that he was a few years older and I learned to work with the Japanese at that time. And the reason that's so important is a lot of our company history, the next story history, is really steeped in Japanese relationships. And we we worked very closely with um, one of the, the Japanese companies for about 27 years, where, where uh, I worked with them to develop a lot of products together. You had mentioned earlier Crocodile Dentist and Gator Golf, but there were many others as well. And um, that really jump-started my career in toys and games. The, you know, those are more typical toys and games like tabletop, plastic, skill, and action. Then we went into radio-controlled cars and, and a lot of other fields. And, and I'm still doing the same thing. I find a lot of, I find a lot of joy and it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy that part of, I don't even consider it work. It's just like something that I do. You know, it's, uh, I would say it's become second nature necessarily because there's always surprises, but it's part of, you know, it's like just part of my life because it's been like that since 1977. So it's a lot of years doing that. That's, that's a wild story. So with the game Othello, did you have any idea of the success that it might have? Like what, could you could you talk a little bit about that experience? Well, it was already successful okay. when I when I was hired. I think it came over in seventy five, and I was hired in seventy seven. It had been shopped around to a bunch of different toy companies, who all turned it down because strategy games, you know, <laughs> didn't sell or wh whatever the conventional wisdom was at the time. And then uh, I went to a company named Gabriel Industries. They were eventually gobbled up by CBS Toys and I think and Hasbro. But 
So it was already established. And part of my job was they were running these, they had an international federation, they're running these international tournaments, fellow tournaments internationally. And um, I was a referee and just just basically a person that was was sent on all the errands to do everything. They, <laughs> what's the word for it? the Johnny uh, something? <laughs> do everything, Johnny. Do everything, or, or Bob. Do everything, and uh, it was it was very it was actually exciting because right off the bat, I was associated with a a global product, a global game that had success, and I was able to meet people from all the different toy companies that had the fellow rights in their respective countries. And then ultimately, after four years, when I went out on my own and started Next Toy in 1981, I already had these relationships because of that, and especially the relationship in Japan, which doesn't happen overnight. You really have to uh, nurture that relationship, even, even to this day. It just requires patience and persistence and uh, an understanding of the Japanese culture. Yeah, right. What tips have you come across working specifically in the third largest market in the world? You mean Japan? Yeah, in Japan. Well, in Japan, so what I've learned is that when we're dealing with like uh, Western nations like Germany or France, England, Italy, etc., and they're working in the United States, there's a real common understanding on how to do business. You don't need anybody in between. But even China, to a large degree, and Chinese work well with the Americans, but the Japanese culture and the Western cultures are so different. I mean, as a simple example, we're taught in the United States and probably elsewhere from a very early age, we're taught to give a very firm handshake. You know, you, you know, give a firm handshake, look them in the eye. And in Japan, you know, they're bowing, they're not touching. So, so we're starting completely, you know, physically different. And then the mentality, so there's a saying in Japan, which translates to English as, the nail that stands up must be hammered down. So they, they, they want more teamwork and less individuality. And the U.S., you know, we go by, you know, stand up and be counted or the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, things like that. So, so there's a big difference to begin with. I also think that there's a – everybody values human relationships, but I think that's a very intricate, integral part of the Japanese business etiquette of when they're dealing, they want to know, they want to get drunk with you. They want to have dinner with you. They want to talk about things other than business. What are your hobbies? What do you like to do? And get a really better understanding of the person. While a lot of times business relationships are just that, you know, I have something that you want and let's make a deal. But uh, in Japan also, it's team decisions. So it's not an individual decision. So, so actually, to get anything done takes a long time, and it takes patience, and it's it's hard to have the patience for a lot of times. I mean, I find it challenging too, but I've learned how to deal with it. I've been I've been uh, molded that way by by my 
Japanese colleagues. <laughs> Molded. Yeah. They make good ceramics in the west of the country too. So <laughs> you must have been molded well. Cool. Well, thank, thank you for that. Actually, the, one of the reasons I started working with them is I was so young that they did feel like they could train me how to deal with them. It was, it was expressed to me that way, actually. So, so, uh, there's a lot of truth to it. There are a lot of rules for sure. Yeah. Kind of like games. Oh, there you go. Nice. <laughs> the other big difference, like Japanese toys to American toys, there was a lot of watch me toys. We call watch me toys. You know, you wind something up and it, and it has this like wonderful mechanism. You think you'll like hop three times, do a somersault, you know, then jump up in the air or something like that. And, and you just marvel at the mechanism, but none of the U.S. toy companies were interested in that. So what we tried to do is is play with those mechanisms and apply them into a game or a toy. That makes a lot of sense. It's it's a four years later you launched Next Toy. Is that right? Yeah. I'm kind of curious. Like, was that always a plan of yours to do that? Was to to go out on your own? Yeah. I I, I mean I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit growing up. You know I. I had various little businesses to make cash in the summer and stuff like that. And and I don't think I'm, I was really good working for somebody. You know, I, obviously I did it for four years and I, and I learned from it and, and, and I think I was a, a good employee, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was driven to. I was more driven to be independent and kind of control my own destiny for whatever reason. I think even as a young kid, I was I was not a good student. I I never liked being told what to do, even to this day. I don't want to have my wife to hear that, but no, she she knows it. <laughs> but but uh, I I it's just like a personality trait, and I and I say that you know some people like they think they want to be an entrepreneur, and you go like, well, what's your motivation? And I feel like if it's if it's just to make money. That's not the right motivation. The motivation is, at least for me and and for other entrepreneurs that I know, it's really just to be independent. And you know, the, the financial. I mean, obviously, the financial stuff is important, but it's not. It's not the driving force. It's it's sort of a uh, a result of of what you're doing. If you're doing it well, you get lucky. And I feel like luck plays a lot of role too. Of course, you have to create your luck, but I, I've been lucky with my relationships and, you know, it's, it's, it's a philosophy anyhow to be free. I actually tell my kids, uh, so I have three kids and I've told them their whole life and, and they all, it's great. They all have great work ethics. They all have kind of an entrepreneurial spirit to themselves. And usually you'd think that comes from, uh, you know, growing up with some hard knocks, which, you know, thankfully they, they didn't. But I, I, you know, I've always told them that freedom is a currency. It's, you know, money is a currency, but freedom is. And as you get older, you know, you get less and less freedom. And because you end up with relationships and maybe children and jobs and so on. And, and it gets squeezed. Then you get to my age and it starts opening up again when, when the kids are out on their own. Yeah, I think we can all, we, we all agree with that here. Absolutely. You know, when you first launched Next Toy, what was, 
what was a catalyst? Like what, what was the first thing that you did? Was it, was it, a, did you invent something? Did you, uh, I had an idea for something. I had an idea for, for a game that was going to need some time to develop with a friend. And we did, we developed the game. It actually ended up coming out several years later. It was a, it was sort of a memory game called Locomotion. And it was sold by a now defunct company named Shopper. You may, may remember the Cooties, very classic toy Cooties. And that was by this company named Shopper, S-C-H-A-P-E-R, not, not like you're shopping. And it was acquired by Milton Bradley, and they sold it for a few years. And um, as a lot of these things, you have these dreams when you create a game that it's going to be something huge, and it, and it isn't. So, so that's that's sort of the norm, but the process is fun, and that jump started. But the key was about a so this was in September of 1981. Actually, I was like saying we, my my official start date of my business and the paperwork was nine nine eighty one, which is a square root day, and and they only come once a decade. So, and I and I like the uh, the eighteens, the nine and. Nine nine the eighty ones the eighty ones the whole thing. I like I like number stuff. Aside from Ken Ken, that that's just a coincidence. And I started the business in September of eighty one, and then in July of eighty two, I was in New York. My dad was working in Boston for a corporation. He was the liaison to the Estes Rockets that I mentioned earlier, and the Kite Company, and. In Japan, he got a call from another company, another Japanese company. A guy said, called him up and said, he's just been assigned to run this international division of of his company. He knows the name of the guy was Kono, the one who had lived in the States. And, And he asked Kono to introduce him to people in the U.S. because he was going to make a trip. And interestingly, Kono wanted to show off and thought I was too young and gave him my dad's contact and information because he was an executive. And Kak Shimakata was, was, was the person's name who had, who had made the query. And he came to New York and my dad's office was in Boston, but by fate, my dad was in New York that day. And he called him up and his secretary hooked him up and wanted to meet my father to pitch him something. My dad asked if I can join the meeting. I didn't have that much going on. And it was a dinner. And I joined the dinner and I saw right away he was. So my dad was working with Estes Rockets and this kite company. And Taksha Makata was showing him like vehicles, a completely different category and a not an appropriate category for the company. They weren't going to do a vehicle business. So I just piped up and said, you know, this has to go to this company, that company. It should go to Tonka or Remco, whatever the vehicle companies were in those days. And the focus of the conversation shifted more to me. He 
in, in a funny way, asked my dad for permission to take me out the next night. You know, very, very formal, like, like asking the hand in marriage, you know. So the next night I went to dinner with him, with Shimakata, and he said, can you really get this product to the companies you mentioned yesterday? I said, yes. I sensed an opportunity. He said to me that his company, it was a big Japanese company, would never understand him that he would like ask me to do that. So this has got to be between he and I. And if there is some success, then he'll find a way to reward me. So he gave me these samples of these of these toys and he left to go to Europe and I I had a dozen of them. It, it was a uh, product the company had gone bankrupt and they had already developed this, so there was some production pieces of it. And I took them and I just sent them out to a bunch of different toy companies, these, these things. And wouldn't you know it, I got a bite. And a company by the name of Ertl, E-R-T-L, no longer in existence too. I put all these companies out of business maybe. So, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so Ertl, this guy, Jack Stoneman, remember his name, called me up and said they were working on a vehicle just like it, except that this one was done. And it didn't use batteries, and the one they had used batteries. And I didn't even know how to make the business deal, to tell you the truth. I was like, well, this is exciting. And and I scrambled. Somehow I got a hold of Shimakata, and they made a deal. They made a deal. And it was a maybe beginner's luck. And one of the rewards they they provided to me was a trip to Japan my first trip in December of 1982, first of probably 130 or 140 over the following years. So I went to Japan December 1982, and they gave me another project there. And this one didn't come to market, but we got down the road with one of the toy companies. And you know, it just it just grew very slowly, and I got introduced to the company, yeah, it wasn't a secret anymore. I wasn't being hidden, like, like uh, having an affair finally came out. And uh, th- there you go. And and uh, I worked with this group for 27 years. In fact, to this day, there's, uh, I mean, sadly, Mr. Shimakata tragically uh, died uh, from brain aneurysm in 1996. It was unexpected, but one of his senior one of the senior people reporting to him had taken on a leadership role and and saying to this day, I, I still work with him and 40, 40 years later, more than 40 years later. It's a wonderful story. So 140 trips over 40 years, it's like five trips a year. I took, uh, well, it was about for 30 something years. Yeah. I would average, uh, four, at least minimum four times a year. I was going to Asia. Japan. Yeah. For up until actually, weirdly, I haven't been since COVID. And so, in that, in all of those trips, you came across a bunch of games. Well, uh, the, uh, most of them were being um, developed. Uh, so, I had, I had very talented people working, you know, for me, with me in the US. And then what was great about this Japanese group was that they didn't want to be 
like the personality to talk to the companies and do all the follow up. And mm. they were interested in making business outside of Japan. So I really had very little to do what they were doing in Japan. And, and they had this overseas operation, OOTD, Overseas Operation Toy Division. And, and I had free, pretty much free reign of that. And, and they would show us mechanisms and drawings. I, I don't know if I said thousands, it's probably true. Never counted them of, of, of concepts and of ideas. And, you know, you, you whittle them down. It's survival of the fittest. You see what our customers want. We pitch them. I, I mean, looking back, I really think we should have done more, uh, you know, but, you know, you, there's so many factors that, that control things. You know, first of all, you have to have a customer that wants the product and so many products end up going down the road and then dying for some reason or another, or even coming out on the market after two years and flopping for whatever reason. So uh, we're fortunate enough that a few good successes over the years, but it's really out of a kind of a, a huge library of ideas of some, you know, very interesting ideas. I go back, so I still have a lot of these archives and I do go through them once in a while to, to see, but uh, I ended up uh, donating many of them to the, there's a toy museum in Rochester, New York, the Museum of Play, Strong Museum. And, and they actually have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of my stuff now. Hey guys, uh, we got to spend the weekend in Rochester, oh, yeah. New York. <laughs> That's happening. It reminds me of the the wallpaper store in Soho. Have you been there? With he's got the all of the posters, this big through space, and it's posters from forever ago, right? And just amazing. Oh. But uh, I love that. That's what happened in my brain when you were talking about mechanisms and operations, yeah. <laughs> sketches from decades ago. Oh, uh, we have renderings. Some some really hysterical ones because no nobody comes up with ideas like the Japanese. I mean, some of these ideas are just like hysterical, you know. Yeah. One of my favorites was uh, my dog can talk. It was basically a collar with a um, a speaker, and then at the end of a of a, a leash, you'd talk into it, but it would sound like it was coming out of the dog. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but, That's funny. But, this morning but, uh, I was talking. Never got made. As if I was the dog, and my daughter went. That's not what she sounds like. And I went, how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I get it. If do a little Scooby-Doo imitation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, there's some really, really crazy ideas come out of Japan. And uh, it's, 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 anyway, it's been, it's really been fun and interesting working with the Japanese all these years. Just on that topic, you've seen thousands of games. Just in your mind, what makes a great game? Oh, I'm not sure I'm a good person for that. Uh, so we look at games not for the gameplay necessarily, but more for like a marketing hook or a marketing feature or what we could sell to a toy company. So my business is is like product placement of ideas so a lot of times, uh, certain products may be great and how they play and the rules and depth of it, but they may not be the kind of thing that you can pitch and sell. It'd be something they'd rather develop internally or 
what they look for from the toy inventing community. So we're considered part of this fraternity of toy inventors, toy and game inventors. And what they look for are customers being like Hasbro, Mattel, SpinMaster, Goliath, you know, the big toy companies, something that's very mass market and they can promote. And in 10 seconds, the target buyer goes, I love that. You know, so it's not necessarily about the the rules or the gameplay. It's more feature driven, the kind of things that we do. In that case, so many elements have to come together because you have the industrial design, the theming. So one game that we're very famous for, and it's really just a lot of great things came together, uh, wasn't really planned, is Crocodile Dentist. And I give so much credit to the industrial designer, Milton Bradley, who's the company that took it at the time, because he's the one that came up with the the design of that crocodile and, and the way it looked originally, and it was so charming. Just as easily could have been a dinosaur, could have been a... Uh, I think we we presented it as a crocodile, but a lot of times these toy companies will change the theme, you know, make it into a dog, they'll make it into a dinosaur, a shark, or whatever. But he, he kept the crocodile, and and somehow his his design of it and the color of it and it's changed over the years but he put it together in such a way that i mean it was just a um a cocktail of good decisions came came together and it sells it 30 something years later it's still selling it's considered a classic in our industry all right everyone quick break attention game creators have you ever thought about selling your game At Hey Good Game, we're looking to acquire and steward some of the most popular and beloved games on the internet. Even if you're just curious, we offer a fast process to getting you an offer. Just provide some basic analytics and revenue details, and we'll quickly get back to you. If you move forward with us, we usually close within 14 days. Visit hey.gg and see how we can take your game to the next level together. And now, back to the show. Gator Golf. Do you know Gator Golf, the game Gator Golf? I've not played it myself. Okay, so it's been around since the early 90s. It's a putting machine in the shape of a alligator. And the way it came about, I mean, you asked me what makes a good game, and I'm kind of go- going to like what, you know, how do we approach games and how do we sell them? So it's a little bit different answer to your question. But at the time, Crocodile Dentist succeeded. There was a game called Shark Attack that was on the market and it was a shark that marched around a board and it was trying to eat characters that were you roll a dice and they were running away and it was a huge success that was probably like 1990 1991 and then crocodile dentist came out tabletop in that version you pull the teeth and then one of the teeth would snap the the jaw closed and then we were trying to figure out in our office how do you extend that like what do you do to get crocodile dentist, you know, like I know you can make it smaller, I know you can change the color, but how do you merchandise it and get another game out of it? And couldn't think of anything. We were really stuck, stumped. And I came to Toy Fair, and Milton Bradley's introducing a spin-off of Shark Attack, and they called it Shark Attack Bowling. 
you probably never heard of it because it, it was a failed product, but I thought it was brilliant merchandising personally. So they had a shark, it was like the bowling ball, and then they had fish as the pins, and you'd rev up their shark and you'd aim it at the pins, it would knock them down. And I immediately said, it's sports. We got to do crocodile dentist with a sport. And we rendered up a bunch of different sports. I think uh, tennis and baseball. I, I don't remember anymore all the sports, but I had the drawing someplace. And one of them was golf. And it just seemed the most natural because of miniature golf. And so that one, the survival of the fittest, that, that's the one that emerged. And it was went into the Milton Bradley line pitched as crocodile dentist golf. Then shark attack bowling failed, like right off the bat. Two months in, three months in, they pulled the plug. They they may have sold a few of them. And because of that, they made up their mind that uh, sports iterations of these popular games they don't sell, you know, suddenly it becomes a rule. <laughs> so so they were going to kill a crocodile dentist golf because the shark attack bowling didn't sell. And luckily, the designer, the same guy that crafted the crocodile, he was assigned to the crocodile dentist golf game. He kept at it and he pitched it in a meeting and they and they loved it and they just changed the branding from crocodile dentist to an alligator, from crocodile to an alligator, and it became Gator Golf. And it's one of the best-selling games, um, you know, we call preschool games in that category. It's a floor game, but it's to this day, it's uh, it's one of the best-selling games in the in the, in the country. I was going to say the world, but the truth is, it doesn't sell so well overseas. But in the U.S., it sounds great. What a wild story. Thanks for sharing that. It's, uh, <laughs> the perseverance of that designer, also pretty pretty interesting. I'm sure there's a lot there. Yeah, he's still, he, his name is Phil Grant. I'll give him a shout out. He's, uh, he's a bit older now and long retired, but he was critical, critical guy. If I understand the story, it sounds like you were on one of these uh, business trips to Japan and you were introduced maybe by a business colleague to what is now Ken Ken. And I'm curious to hear if you could just describe kind of the first moment you played with Kashikoko Naro Puzzle. Hopefully I said that right. Kashikoko Naro Puzzle. Puzzle. So I'd been going to Japan all those dozens and dozens, hundred times, you know, already, you know, like, um, and you meet people. And there was one particular guy at a Japanese book publisher. So book publishing, just by its nature, is very language-based. And they had a little toy division, and we flirted with some things over time, some educational toys, and very tiny successes. A little, a couple of things happened. But the guy that ran that division, I, I really liked him. He's a great personality, warm and friendly and outgoing, and and whenever I went to Japan, I was always trying to find, you know, a coffee, a lunch, a dinner. Sometime, you know, you'd be there and just just to catch up. It's the human relationship thing that I'll circle back to that I mentioned earlier. So told him I was coming over to Japan. This was April of 2007. 
they were just returning from the Bologna Book Fair, which is the largest children's book fair in the, in the world. So, so actually, I was already in Japan, and they were just coming back. So my meeting with them was towards the end of my trip. So I went over to the office. His name is Tak Kubidera. And immediately, he's a very charming guy. And uh, he said, you know, hey, Bob-san, uh, we have this game. And he uses numbers, so there's no language. And so, so we showed it in Bologna to a bunch of companies, and there's a lot of excitement. It was, keep in mind, this was on the hills of Sudoku coming to market in the U.S. already for a year or two, and like, you know, meteoric rise to popularity. So he brought out a book of this Ken Ken puzzles. And you ask my immediate reaction, well, my eyes glazed over, completely glazed over. I was, uh, I, I'm not really a puzzle person. And I didn't, hadn't done Sudoku. I was aware of it because it was so popular. And it looked like a Sudoku clone. And we always prided ourselves on being innovative and original. And I didn't, you know, I didn't really want to be like a Me Too kind of product. And then I saw like addition signs and subtraction signs and division signs, like like the operators. And if you look at Ken Ken, it's got thick lines and thin lines. And like right off the bat, it's very, I always say, it's very visually intimidating, Ken Ken. Like you look at it and you have to be a certain kind of person that embraces it. I'm not that person. And I, I looked at, this thing, he showed me this book, and I was like, you know, like, forget it. And and he was telling, look, we introduced this book in June of 2006. This was now April of 2007. And in that 10-month period, they sold 1.3 million of the books, which was an extraordinarily high number for a book of this type. And he goes, it's got depth, it's got scale, it's for all ages, it's, you know, what I've been preaching over the years, it's gender-free. So it's it's male or female, it's any age, and it's language-free. So technically, everybody in the world is your uh, potential customer. And that didn't escape me, because I had a friend from the toy business that made an enormous success selling candy and and after candy this is very funny he made a bigger success selling toothbrushes it's great to go from candy to toothbrushes but he made the first electric five dollar electric toothbrush and he sold it to procter and gamble as the crest electric toothbrush let's say a nice amount he's still a good friend and and he had always said to me what appealed to him were products that didn't weren't restricted by gender or or age or language, and candy and toothbrushes were were among those. So I had that in the back of my head, even though the product, and they were just telling me, you know, how great it was, this that, and then my, you know, not so brilliant comment was, "Tak, tak, tak, kubidera, taksan. This could be the greatest product in the world." But if nobody's ever heard of it, it doesn't mean anything. 
And his immediate response was, well, how do people hear of it? And I said, because knowing Sudoku, I said, well, it has to be in the newspaper. And he said, oh, Bob, please put it in the newspaper. <laughs> and, and it was kind of funny. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, God. But I knew I could get to Will Shorts. So Will Shorts is the New York Times puzzle editor. He lived near me. He had just um, gotten more popularity because uh, he was a subject of a documentary called Wordplay about the crossword puzzle business. As he runs the crossword puzzle for the New York Times. And I have friends, of course, in the puzzle and the toy world and the toy business. And I was just thinking, really, to stop this sales pitch about Ken Ken, I was like, all right, I, I think I can show it to somebody at the New York Times. So it was really like a throwaway line. But, I, you know, I meant I'd try to get a hold of Will Shorts. And funny enough, there was a woman uh, working for Kubadera. Her name was Nikki. Her name is Nikki. And she said, oh, I already sent it to the New York Times. I never heard from them. You know, I was like, well, of course, you know, you, you can't just send these things cold, you know, and expect to get an answer. So they loaded me up with a bunch of the books in Japanese, you know, even though it's not language, of course, the title and the rules and everything's in Japanese. And I had a, an English rule sheet, which made a few copies as it turned out, I was on this trip to Japan with two colleagues from two different toy companies that I was bringing around to my different colleagues in Japan to see new ideas. And I gave the Ken Ken to each of them. They were presidents of their own companies, respective companies, and they both loved it. Like right after, I hadn't even played it yet, and I gave it to them, and they were like, "This is great." And that year or the year prior. Uh, this is before apps. So this there was a handheld Sudoku, like a handheld game, an electronic game, like a, almost like a calculator, but it was dedicated Sudoku, sold some crazy number, like 50 million of them, or, you know, some number like that. I don't, I don't remember the exact number. So they both said, oh, we want the handheld rights to this. <laughs> so, so... So that was like the first inkling that something. Then I, I went back to the U.S. and I wrote an email. I called my friend Mark. I said, uh, you know Will Shorts, right? And said, yeah. I said, can you introduce me? So he goes, well, just, just send him an email. Here's his email address and just tell him I referred you. So I sent him an email saying, hey, I live near you. And Will tells the story the thing, the most appealing thing that I wrote in the my letter was, "I won't take more than five minutes of your time." <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I guess I wrote that. I said, uh, "You know, give me five minutes. I want to show you this thing." So I thought I'd be going down to the New York Times. You know, like I'm like in my head, I'm, I'm, you know, we'll show the New York Times. I'm going to go to the New York Times and show them. So he goes, "Well, uh, you say you live in Chappaqua as a town. He, he was in the town next. He goes." Uh, come over to my house at 11 o'clock on Tuesday. So I went over there and he, he answered the door in like shorts and a t-shirt, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, it's the New York times. You're going to be in a suit. <laughs> so, so I went in, I, I had the, this Japanese book or these books. I'm 
try to explain like uh, you know I have I have a little bit of success and and history and toys and games he, he, he couldn't care less to tell you the truth <laughs> and uh, and I said let me show you and I'd learned how to play the game at this point let me let me show you how to play this game and he was like. Uh, if it has to be explained to me and I can't learn on my own, it's uh, it's forget it, uh, just leave it. And I left. I left. <laughs> and three days later, I get an email from Will saying, uh, "Hey Bob, um, you know you came the other day and you know you left this book and it had 105 puzzles in it." And I couldn't put it down. I finished the first 103. The last two were a little too hard, but I'll get to them. But what I really don't understand is how a puzzle of this quality I never heard of. And, you know, because he gets pitched everything, everything, everything. And uh, before you do anything, come back. And now, now I was greeted a little, <laughs> a little more uh, openly, you know, and we had a nice conversation. And I didn't even know—I didn't have any rights to it. To tell you the truth, I—I I, I didn't know, and I thought it was going to be a book business, and I'll be the agent for the books, and I find a book publisher and whatever. I—I—I I, I, I didn't know, and the name, as you said, was Kashikaku Narrow Puzzle. Uh, but one of the Japanese editors called it Ken Ken Blocks. And they had like a category of, of kind of logic games and things. And you all have different names, sort of, you know, Western names. And this one was called Ken Ken Blocks. The reason it was called Ken Ken Blocks was Ken means wisdom in Japanese. So Ken Ken was wisdom squared. and uh, And I just called it intuitively ken ken just it was easy to say easy to spell and whatever i i thought actually it was a little too trite and kind of simple sounding but i didn't want to be like a doku i didn't i i, I wanted to stay away from the doku thing because as i said earlier i didn't want to be a copy of sudoku i wanted it to be its own thing so i just called it ken ken and uh, which is what the Japanese were doing, Ken Ken Blocks. And he said, look, he goes, whether I'm involved with this or not, I think it's a great puzzle. He goes, the New York Times, I've been trying to push them for years to do another puzzle other than the crossword, and they won't hear of it. But I'm happy to set you up with the New York Times to, to, to you know, have a meeting. I said, sure, great. So he did that, and uh, a little more intricacy to the story, but that's basically the essence of it. And I uh, went to the New York Times, and I showed it, and, you know, they they seemed a little bit intrigued, but at the end they said, uh, you know, we're not going to add a puzzle. And I kept in contact with Will a little bit, and um, he thought that if they were ever going to add a puzzle, it was going to be to the Sunday magazine the last page and never in the newspaper because it was it was too big an undertaking actually the opposite happened but i'll get to that in a second okie dokie a quick break are you a fan of games that challenge your mind and sharpen your skills dive into the world of hey good game where brainy fun meets creativity like sudoku but need a bigger challenge check out kokoro conquest 
It's a fun test of logic and math skills. Then get ready for Crosswordle. It's a matchup of Crossword and Wordle, a new take on word puzzles that will keep you guessing and engaged. You'll find those games and others at hey.gg. And now back to the show. So in the meantime, I didn't know what the deal would be. And I pitched something to Will about how it'd be structured and, and he rightly thought uh, at the time that if it was going to happen in the U.S., it was going to be because of his name and presence. And and I, I just couldn't find the right formula to involve the Japanese creator, the Japanese publisher, myself, and Will. What everybody's expectations were, the math wasn't working. So I kind of just slept on it. I had it. I knew at this point it was a special product because Will Shorts had given it his good housekeeping seal of approval. It was Will Shorts seal of approval. Uh, the people that I exposed it to thought it was fantastic, who were into Sudoku and into puzzles. So I kind of knew I had something, but I didn't know I didn't know how to make the business deal on it, candidly. And I just thought it wasn't going to happen. And then... Um, I was working on a chess project with Hasbro and it required programming. And the person at Hasbro said, if this is ever going to see the light of day, you need to work with the father of of computer chess. His name is David Levy and he lives in the UK. Here's his number. If you can get him involved with it, then this has a possibility of, of moving forward with us. So I got a hold of David Levy. The project uh, got down the road, but ultimately was killed. Five years pass, six years pass. Now Ken Ken, I have Ken Ken. But I'm thinking of this chess thing again. I, I, I think it's, maybe I'm going to revive it. And I called David Levy up, and I said, I'm thinking of reviving the chess thing. And he says, well, I wrote a book. He, he was an artificial intelligence expert before AI is on everybody's lips now. So this is back in 2007. And he said, I, I wrote a book and my publisher is HarperCollins in England. And they think I should be on the Colbert Report, a, a television show that you have in the States. Named the Colbert Report for Stephen Colbert. So they're flying me into New York. And I'm coming in next week, and my only free night is the night I get there. Why don't you come for dinner? We'll talk about it. So I go into the city, my wife, and we, we go to dinner. And this is in October of 2007. And start eating dinner, and his phone rings. And I am blah, 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 talking. He hangs up, and he goes, uh, they just called a writer's strike. So my appearance on the Colbert Report is being postponed until that's finished. Then he says, it's just as well. I have to get back to England to run the World Sudoku Championships. So I said, hold on for a minute. What are you talking about? So David is a chess expert, and he actually officiated Bobby Fischer matches and um, Deep Blue and IBM had their machine against, I think it was Kasparov, and, you know, the first time, and he, he was a 
a referee or some official doing it. And, and he was tagged by the Times of England, who started Sudoku. They were the first newspaper to publish Sudoku. And they asked him to run Sudoku tournaments because he was in that world. So I said, uh, what, do you, what do you have to do with Sudoku? And he, he mentioned, and I said, well, I have this Sudoku-like product that I found, da-da-da-da-da, come back the next night. And the fun part of the story is um, the name of the book that he wrote that he was going to be in the Colbert Report, and he subsequently was, and I urge you to, to look this up, to Google this. It was called Sex and Love with Robots. And, and how between artificial intelligence and conversational software and robotic technology that people are going to fall in love and marry and have sex with robots, which is happening. And David wrote a book about it. And Stephen Colbert interviewed him several months later. And it's, it's, it's a very entertaining five or six minutes, I'll tell you that much. So... Any, anyhow, uh, he, he, he went back. I, I met him. I showed him the game. He, he flew back to England. He contacted me and said, um, this puzzle is fantastic. And as it turns out, Times UK are looking for a successor to Sudoku. And would I be able to pitch this to them? I said, by all means. So he, he went into the Times. He pitched it to them. They were very poker faced, but they showed interest, and and they and they kept on saying, "Give me an answer," but never got the answer. Never got the answer. Never got the answer. And finally, there's a British toy fair every year. It takes place in London in January. So I said, "Tell them I'm coming to the British toy fair. See if you can set up a meeting at the Times of London, Times UK," which he did. And I went with my daughter, who was ten at the time. Uh, went in and couldn't believe it. They they said, we're launching Ken Ken on Easter Sunday. And it was March 22nd that year of 2008. And they had a 14-page supplement of Ken Ken puzzles. 14 pages supplement. And they had it all prepped and ready to go and the whole thing. And I'm in this, you know, in this meeting and it really caught by surprise. I didn't know the decision had been made. And that was very exciting. And I hadn't been in touch. I, so I came home, and I hadn't been in touch with, with Will at all since since the summer before. Uh, I called him up, and I said, you know, the Times UK is doing it. And the next day, I got a call from the Times going, did you tell Will Shorts we're doing this? And I was like, uh-oh. They said, this is a secret. <laughs> you know, I, got my, I got my hand slapped. But um, a week before it launched, I think I'm pretty sure it was March 22nd. I had the day wrong, but a week before it launched in the UK, I got a phone call from uh, Macmillan Publishing in New York, St. Martin's Press, who run all of the New York Times crossword and puzzle books. And the, the woman on the phone, named Lisa Sense, said, Will Short says you have a property that we must have. <laughs> so went down. We made a 10-book deal with them. I hadn't even launched yet. It didn't do well. Uh, one thing I, I, I kind of neglected here, uh, or I skipped over, was the rights for it. 
so what happened was that the Japanese company, so this guy Takubadera I mentioned earlier, I told him you know, we were generating some interest but didn't know where it was going to go and it was going to take a kind of a significant investment. Uh, we had to build um, a generator, I call it a generator, because you can't make enough Ken-Kens by hand and, and there's uh, intellectual property and things like this. And he said, can you guarantee success can you guarantee this thing will be a success no no there's no way to guarantee anything uh, but it's going to need investment so he said that his company would never invest on speculation on this and and there's no way he could get a budget which we're estimating is a couple hundred thousand dollars to build the generator do the intellectual property and and the continued development, everything like that. And I had a, I don't know, I, I felt like I had an opportunity in my schedule, in my life, and whatever. So I said, well, I'll do it. I'll do it. But it means that I'm going to end up owning it because the trademark is going to be in my name. I'll pay for it all. We'll work out something. And he gave it his blessing. We, we figured out a... Uh, an arrangement, which we still have to this day. I mean, it did take over a year to get that contract done because there's a lot of a lot of people weighing in on it. But that's how I came to own Ken Ken. Is I called my lawyer up from his bar at this hotel in New York, and I said, "Can you register the name Ken Ken for?" And we picked three categories, you know, computer play and print and whatever the categories were. The class is 16, 41, and 9, I think it was, or something. And, you know, and then over the course of time, we expanded that to, like, basically all over the world, even though we didn't have any business. And for a long time, I thought I made maybe a foolish expenditure because we like registered in China, we registered in South America, we registered every place in it. There's a lot of, depending on the country, there's a lot of fees, there's renewal fees, there's maintenance fees, there's all these fees. And we didn't have business in a lot of these places. It was really mostly in the U.S. It started. But but when you know it, uh, about five years ago, I got a, Will introduced me to the guy who brought Sudoku to China. And the uh, Chinese government basically appropriated it from him after it became so successful. Wow. And he was looking for something else. And now he's my partner in Ken Ken China, and he's doing a fantastic job with it. And uh, and it was really because we had strong trademark protection. Uh, you know, this decision I'd made 10 years prior or eight years prior that we hadn't had any return on finally had a return and, and it's happened like that. I mean, it, I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. I was used to dealing, as we talked, spoke before, tabletop plastics, mechanisms, batteries, uh, all kinds of things. And KenKen is largely a digital product. A year after we launched, so we launched in the Times UK in March of 2008. Then, literally watching my son play lacrosse. I was speaking to one of his friend's mothers who was a lawyer for Reader's Digest. They were in our town. 
and I asked her to set me up at Reader's Digest, and I went in there, and I pitched Ken Ken, and they said, can Will Schwartz's name be on it? And I said, yes. I figured I'd ask him later. <laughs> and they said, okay, we'll do it. And he was fine with that. I didn't even know how to make the deal. You know, it was a modest deal, but they came out with it. And I suddenly just decided to build this Ken Ken website, KenKen.com website, with no game on it, just like information and rules. And because it was in Reader's Digest, we were getting about 250 visitors a day or something on a good day. And then I went back to the New York Times, and we had built this um, this player that would generate, that generate the puzzles for the newspaper. So they'd always, you can't make them by hand. There's too many of them. So we built this. And in the middle of it, I said to the developer, actually David Levy was overseeing it. I said, um, can this be an interactive player as well? I was sure, for another X amount of money, do it. So they they built that. So I had this now this the generator we still call it the generator, which would generate Ken Ken of all different sizes and challenges and scale skills and operations, and it was also a player. So I went back to the New York Times, who didn't want it in the newspaper, and I said, "Would you put this on your website because it doesn't take up any real estate? It's just a game." And they weren't in the games business like they are today. And and they went, uh, okay, we'll give it a try. And then luckily I said something like, all right, you have 60 days to make a decision if you want it in print. And you can be, you can have exclusive print rights for a year for, um, uh, there was some restriction to it, but something like that. And the Times UK was already, had already come out with it. and. And like a month in, they said, all right, we want the print rights. And I was like, wow, great. So they were going to originally launch in the beginning of uh, January of 2009, like the first Monday. And then a few days before, they said, uh, you know, something's complicated. We can't launch it. It'll be the following week. And then that happened two or three times. And finally, uh, I was, I was dealing with a woman, uh, Lydia Reynolds, there. I said, uh, Lydia, is this really going to happen? And she said, seriously. Sounds like a joke. But she said, seriously. She said, Bob, we have more people trying to put Ken Ken in the New York Times than we have covering the war in Afghanistan. And finally, on February 9th, 2009, the New York Times put it in print. And my little website, which we didn't even have a game on. We had 250 visitors a day on a good day. I had uh, 35,000 visits that day. And uh, I don't know, thousand, easily a thousand emails. Like, what is this? How do you play? There are a million questions, mostly similar. And uh, that's how Ken Ken started in the New York Times. And this is before apps. Yeah. So I thought it'd be a book guy and then that year or 2008 i got contacted by um capcom a big mobile game company that who wants to be a millionaire and some other games and they called and they asked for the ken ken rights after the times uk so so i made that deal and expired after three years 
And then we decided we'd build it ourselves, which we did. So so we do our own self-publishing now. We have our own app. We run the website. These things are requiring constant changes. It's actually, uh, we haven't updated it in many years, but uh, we're investing a lot into it, into a huge overhaul, which we're about a year behind on. But but it'll happen soon. And that's that's kind of a Ken Ken story. <laughs> so. It's a that's a fascinating uh journey. Thanks for thanks for sharing that, Robert. I'm I'm super curious from a business perspective. It it sounds like as you were getting started on this, you kind of first thought of yourself as like, well, maybe I'll be a book agent on this and and that'll be kind of the the primary right. income stream. But it it from what you've outlined, I have to imagine there are quite a few different income streams now, maybe licensing uh publishing rights to newspapers, maybe licensing digital rights to gaming companies, some direct publishing of both books and direct publishing of websites or other games. And I'm just curious to the extent that you're willing to share, like on a percentage basis, like where are you seeing a lot of the the revenue today? Good question. So, So when I first started it, I didn't not that I know so much more now, but I really didn't know anything then. And I just built it. Okay. And we had a lot of players and we had no we had no revenue model, no business model. And I figured we'll figure that out later. Let's just get the players. And that's sort of what happened. Then um I brought in a guy I grew up with actually who was a business, you know, at the Harvard Business School and run big companies and and uh he kind of straightened out my mess and try to make it a business. So so our primary income is digital advertising. So there's a lot of digital ads. So there are several income products. Uh, so we do self-publishing. We also do license publishing. We don't do so much of that anymore. It started that way, but it's mostly our own books for the people who want to solve in pencil and paper. Then we have uh, a app which we control, and uh, it's Android and Apple, and it's about to get a major overhaul. Been working on it for quite a while. It's got a very straightforward income model. Uh, we're going to enhance that a bit with, um, you know, maybe it's some kind of token model and some other things that you see in a lot of a lot of mobile games. I want to help the experience. I don't want to ruin the experience. So. So it's requiring a lot of a uh, tweaking. Then we we have a syndication model of newspapers, and that's actually how we got most awareness. So we're in a few hundred newspapers now, including the New York Times, and where we see players mostly are where those newspapers have been over the course of time. And we have a tournament model. So we have um, international franchises. Right now, they're in China. Well, that's a joint venture with the with the, the Sudoku. They call him Uncle Sudoku, the, the, the guy there, George. India, Egypt, the UAE, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, but that's not going so strongly. A lot of the Asian countries are much more math-centric than we are in the U.S., they, 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 the, the importance of math. At the end of the day, Ken Ken is a logic and math puzzle. And I said it before, it's visually intimidating. It's it's sort of like the riding the bicycle analogy. Once you learn how to do Ken Ken, you, you go, oh my God, it's, it's like uh, 
that's the system and it's easy. But when you see it, it looks a lot harder than it is. And I've had so many reactions over the years of when I show people how to play it and they go, that, that's all it is. It's, they, they thought it was much more complex. It isn't. But um, the franchises are mostly tournaments. They run tournaments. They just held a huge one in Egypt and in India. And the UAE is uh, the Ministry of Education basically endorsed us in the UAE. So in the U.S., a lot of people have heard of Kenton, but a, a lot of people haven't. In the UAE, it's it's almost like a household word because the Ministry of Education endorsed it, and it's in all the schools as a as a supplemental math product. And it's growing very fast in, in India and Egypt right now and some other countries. And we get frequent inquiries. In Africa, we, have, we had a, uh, in Uganda of all places, a, a partnership, but we're price shifting it to a, to a bigger company in, in Africa. And uh, that's the, but it's, it's digital ads. I personally am not in love with it. I, I don't like swamping people with a lot of advertisements i i think we can do a better job the way we do it but you you and my son robert he <laughs> he doesn't like that we have ads in in the games we create either so <laughs> <laughs> it's a necessary it's kind of a necessary evil you know to, yep. to keep and we, and we and and we have a big uh education following and we give that away for free so we have forty two thousand teachers uh, educators, not all teachers, but educators that receive uh, free weekly Ken Ken sets or every Friday. So if any educators are watching this and they want it, just go to KenKenPuzzle.com and select the uh, uh, find the teacher page. And <laughs> there's a way to sign up there. I couldn't tell you how to navigate to it unless I looked at it, but it should be easy. And real quick, uh, maybe just a quick answer on this sounds like you've got like a lot of joint ventures and a lot of, uh, you know, indirect partnerships on, on Ken Ken. Yes. In the early days you were answering a thousand emails at your kitchen table. I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you have Im- direct employees for Ken Ken at this point? And yeah, what is, what does your team look like on that? So our team, so we have the same developer since day one. He's located in Croatia. He is an employee of ours now. For many years, he was moonlighting. I have a young man in New York City that handles the customer service, the customer care. You know, people write in saying we made a mistake in the puzzle. For the record, there's never been a mistake or all kinds of things. Uh, Most of them are technical issues. They paid for something and they don't see it. Maybe they didn't log in. There's a lot of reasons. So he works, and David Levy still generates our puzzles for all the newspapers and our website and so on, although uh, this young man is also starting to supplement that and support that effort. And, And then I have a partner, Jerry March who basically runs the company and, and he's really the business. I'm, he's the operations and knows how to make it into a business. I'm, I think I'm more of a, of the face of it, maybe a marketing idea person about it. I, I'm, I'm the dreamer. I've been called a dreamer. So, so, uh, not always complimentary in a complimentary way, but, uh, 
but but I'm uh, you know like I have the you know the dreams of what it should be. Uh, maybe I've, I've lost a little bit of that energy, <laughs> getting a little comfortable with it. But uh, we are ready, you know, maybe to to go to a next stage. Uh, I think there's a huge opportunity. We're, we're like really well known and maybe one of the most successful games of this type. But I think we're only a small percentage of what what it can be with the right thinking and investment on it. So I still think the best is yet to come anyway. For you know, aspiring game developers or designers out there who are looking to build their games or have the entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, do you have any advice for them? I, I, I think like the key word is sort of like persistence, but there's a delicate balance between persistence and nuisance. And I think if you believe in something, you know, I mean, I see it a lot of times, a lot of creative people don't want to deal with the business aspect of things, or they don't know how, or they don't have the confidence to do it. So if you feel that way, maybe don't be afraid to collaborate with somebody that will complement your skills. And I know for myself, I've always done better when I've had a, when I'm able to just like do business development. You know, the the business school term is business development, but it's basically the dreaming and going out there and trying to find new things and then have somebody behind me to execute that and do it. And Ken, Ken, I have have my partner, Jerry, who does a great job with it. With my toy business for years, I had Taksha Makata, who I met accidentally, and then I just had great, great people working for me over the years yeah. to help, to follow up. So, so I would say, don't be afraid to collaborate. I guess that would be the biggest. I think a lot of people don't want to do it. They're scared or they don't know, you know, the other party. And, and I think there is some validity to that. You know, you got to be careful who you partner with because there are a lot of horror stories with that. But it takes a lot of uh, different components to make a successful business. And it's very rare one person can do it all. Yeah. I will absolutely say yes if I'm assigned to be a friend of a Japanese person or, you know, anybody else in the country. Because it sounds like your uh, your adventure in business came from being assigned a friend, which is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, so. <laughs> It is. It's true. Uh, my question would be, you know, it would be like a game developer's guilty pleasure when you play someone else's game. Do you have any game that you would assign me to play? Oh, ooh. I've always liked deductive logic, which is interesting. This Ken Ken is sort of in that field. So I always like Stratego and Mastermind, even like Battleships, uh, even on a simple level, like Guess Who, you know, that game, <laughs> Guess Who. The little flippy cards. Yeah, yeah. It's invented by an Israeli. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a great story on its own, actually. The father died just passed a couple of years ago, was a classmate of Anne Frank's. Oh, wow. And the husband and wife uh, created that and many other fantastic games out of Israel. Uh, their sons now run the business and have their own particular successes. That you know, my my middle son who who works for the company works for us. He's a real gamer, and I know he's gotten 
very much into like Magic the Gathering. And I mean, he just loves all kinds of games. Just He's just like really buried in it. He, he just knows games. He knows what's commercial, what's not. He, he, he'd be, in a lot of ways, a better person to ask. I I look at games strictly from, you know, almost like a, a commercial standpoint, sure. whether it's something we can, I we get, I see so many games, so I get turned on if they have like a clever mechanism, either either gameplay mechanism, or or physical mechanism. And what I mean by gameplay mechanism, like I would have loved to have come up with the game Twist at the time, you know, which which is like a completely new way to play. Even to this day, there's hardly things like it. Games like Bop It. I particularly like things like that. We we created a game. I'm trying to think of when it was. Maybe about uh, must be almost fifteen years ago. That I love. It, it had modest success. It's called the iTop, and we have this great patent. But it senses the Earth's magnetic field. So when you spin the top, every time it passes magnetic north registers it so it counts rotations so because of that there's like a lot of games you can play but it's fit you know it's physical it's kind of a clever you know uh device gadget yeah i call it more of a gadget than a, than a toy or a game maybe there's a um, mashup between the uh magnetic top and twister that sounds fun <laughs> how many times you have to touch come yellow up with it. come up with it we're, we're represented that's so good well it's been a pleasure to hear your story thank you so much for sharing it my pleasure thank you please please edit a lot out <laughs> tell a lot of stories no it was uh time well spent we really appreciate you sharing your journey yes yes